Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Moonface by Jack London. I'm really glad we're going to be discussing this. Jesse, it's not one of the very most famous London stories, but I know it's a favorite of yours. And now that I've read it again carefully, I see a lot going on in it. I'd really like to know uh, what's there for you. What made you suggest it to us? I've been a big fan of London for a long time. I've not read everything he's written. But this is very arguably my favorite short story of his. He's written a lot of short stories. He's not well known for them. But uh, I think it's a masterful tale. And it's very, it's very, very short. It's told from the point of view of a monster. Um, and yet I find myself in so much sympathy with him, even though what he does is monstrous. I find myself laughing along with him. Or maybe he is not lack of lacking, laughing. There's something about this story that's very important to me. For those uh, people who maybe haven't read the story, uh, I just want to point out, I hope you mean, although we don't get a description of the narrator, um, I hope you mean he's a moral monster. You're not suggesting yes. he's got, you know, ugly fangs or something. N- he's not ugly, as far as we know. Um, but his his soul is ugly. His one of the sub the subtitle that the story first had when it was published That's is 1902, right? Right. It was published in the Argonaut, July twenty first, nineteen o two. It was titled Moonface: A Story of Moral Antipathy, and that's exactly what it is. It's a story of a guy who despises another person for their morality, or it's a story of a person. The narrator is someone we should have moral antipathy for. And I like that ambivalence in in the subtitle. Hmm. Interesting. I hadn't read it that way. I Well, okay. So the simple plot is that uh, it, the story begins, John Claverhouse, or Claverhouse, was a moon-faced man. You know the kind cheekbones wide apart, chin forward, melt and forehead melting into the cheeks so complete the perfect round, uh, to complete the perfect round, and the nose broad and pudgy, equidistant from the circumference, flattened against the very center of the face like a dough ball upon the ceiling. Um, So it starts out with this narrator asking, assuming that we understand exactly his viewpoint, uh, frankly, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't immediately. I've never met a moon-faced man. Yeah, well, I have in Korea, but but I think most <laughs> uh, most Anglo-Americans don't wouldn't be described as as moon-faced. I'd also point out that uh, this is a story about how the man, the the monster as you call him, nameless, does more and more harmful things to John Claver House, Claver House, um, until eventually kills him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's quite happy <laughs> that he's killed him. Um, he kills him in a way that perhaps you'll want to describe since it's so clever and you like the story. But I would mm. point out the brief that briefly that in this very opening passage, 
Um, when it says that the face looks like it's the kind that's been flattened against the very center of the, the face, like a ball, a dough ball upon the ceiling, mm-hmm. that's an interesting uh, vehicle for this uh, metaphor or the simile. I mean, who takes a dough ball and throws it up against the ceiling to watch it flatten up there? Um, little kids, you know, maybe yeah. rambunctious teenagers. Yeah. and. And when the ball hits the ceiling, in a way, it explodes. I think that 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 phrase in the beginning foreshadows how the story ends. So I'd love to hear you say sort of how you think the story unfolds. Assuming you think I'm right in starting it this way. Yeah, I think you're right. What's interesting is uh, we don't know where this is taking place. We don't know much about it other than it's, it's sort of rural. The community is made up of basically the main character. Uh, the unnamed monster, and John Claverhouse. And all we know is that John Claverhouse lives by, he's a neighbor of the main character, and is abhorred by the main character, the unnamed narrator. He does a series of uh, vengeful, it seems like vengeful actions, but they're, they're unprompted. So there's it's just malicious actions that get no rise out of John Claverhouse. No matter what the narrator does to him to attack him for having a moon face, the John Claverhouse character just takes it in stride. In fact, he seems completely unaffected by all of the tragedies that befall him. Um, his, he loses his house. He loses his, his farm. He loses um, his dog. And Always nothing at the hands of the monster. At the hands of the monster. And this infuriates the narrator. It, 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 the, his face and his laugh are infuriating. What I love uh, as we're reading the story and as you read the story aloud to yourself, I hope you do when you read this, um, that you can almost feel the emotion of the monster as you read it. The lines... Um, <laughs> they come right out, and they you can feel them. Listen to this. By the blood of Judas, how I hated him. Then there was that name, Claverhouse. What a name. Wasn't it absurd? Claverhouse. Merciful heaven, why Claverhouse? Again and again I asked myself that question. I should not have minded Smith or Brown or Jones, but Claverhouse? I leave it to you. Repeat it to yourself. Claverhouse. Just listen to the ridiculous sound of it. Claverhouse. Should a man live with such a name, I ask you? No, you say no, said I. That it's it's kind of an insanity, an <laughs> obsession. And he can get no rise from John Claverhouse. And so he sees fit to rid the earth of him. And at the end, what's so monstrous is he says that everything's good now. (laughs) My days are peaceful. My nights sleep deep. He has no remorse for this monstrous action. The, the, uh, The twist of how he kills him I think is wonderful as well. And I take great delight in that monstrousness, which is shameful to me, but I love it. Um, the, uh, after killing John Claverhouse's dog, the narrator replaces the dog with a dog of his own training, a retriever bitch uh, spaniel 
who he has endlessly practiced the art of retrieving. He throws a stick and instantly trains her to immediately and without mouthing the stick, return it to the master. But John Claverhouse has a small sin. Uh, he enjoys fishing, but he doesn't fish in the normal fashion. He fishes using dynamite, which <laughs> leads to a delightfully twisted and monstrous destruction of a poor soul who just wanted to go fishing and had nothing bad to say about anyone in the world and just seemed to enjoy every little bit of life. I love this story. <laughs> uh, it, in a way I can see this story as a cartoon. The, uh, <laughs> The, the last image is of the, the, the dog with the dynamite in his mouth, her mouth, I should say, and Claverhouse running away. And as Claverhouse is in mid-stride, the dog is leaping up. And we're told that it's, it's as if you got a still out of a, a Roadrunner cartoon or something. I mean, there the two of them are. And then Kablooey, you know, and of course, they're shot to smithereens. Uh, then the most monstrous thing, of course, is that the very end of the story, as you say, is the narrator congratulating himself on having done this in such a clean, lovely way that nobody will ever know that he did it. And his world is now happy because the moon face is gone. Um, that you love it, I think, suggests in part. It's up to you to disagree, Jesse that you do read this a little bit as if it were a cartoon. That is, you're not actually painting empathetically for poor John Claverhouse and the indignities and, and punishments that are inflicted upon him by the narrator. You're just sort of watching as the narrator goes from letting out the cattle to burning down his, his uh, barn to getting him kicked out of the house with a bad mortgage to finally killing him. It's just this crescendo. It's just, it's just like a, a set of jokes in a, in a cartoon. It's getting, uh, build, building up to this cinematic, uh, highly stylized climax, which prevents us, I think, from having true empathy for John Claverhouse. Mm -hmm. That way it's possible to look at the whole thing as a kind of grim joke. Um, and I'm thinking that's perhaps how you were reading it. Well, I, I see it that way, absolutely. I mean, it is a grim joke. And when I read this with students, they think it's hilarious, too. <laughs> yeah. I think that image right at the end of, you know, the guy furiously running away from his beloved new pet um, that just wants to love and do the retrieving she's been trained to do. And then having them both disappear in a poof of, you know, smoke and splattered all over the landscape, never to be seen again. It's a wonderful image, and I think that that's a deeply disturbing uh, reaction that I'm having, because I shouldn't feel that way, because this is a monster. And I think that Jack Lennon is so good at tuning into something that's in me that wants to see sort of this monster sort of action take place is what's so disturbing about this story. I think that there are 
other things going on in the story, in the choice of words, in the way in which the the first person monster narrator tells it, that resonate with other possibilities that I think may be engaged unconsciously, at least by some readers, and that those possibilities are what make the the events have something at stake. That is, uh, if we had a cartoon and a rock were being chased by a, uh, a wind-up toy, um, I, I don't think we would care as much as we do when we sense that there is a kind of animation, I mean in the sense of filled with a soul, in Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote. Um, I think something is going on here, and let, let me offer some of the possibilities that I see. Um, this is a 1902 story. It's called Moonface, and right off the bat, we're told you know how those moon faces just make you feel like they've been exploded against the ceiling. That's why I hated him, the narrator goes on, because his face was an offense to me. So I looked up the word moon face, and uh, in the 1940s, it came to be used in medicine to describe a certain um, physiological result of endocrine disorders, as in Cushing's disease. But from the middle of the 19th century on, Moonface was used to describe someone who was as beautiful as the moon. And specifically, the Oxford English Dictionary gives a, an exemplary sentence about how the caliph looks at the moon faces in his harem. I would like to suggest that this continual return to the moon face, to the softness that John Claverhouse seems to project, is an affront to this narrator because the narrator can't just dismiss Claverhouse as being a feminist. In fact, Claverhouse has a son, and as far as we can tell from the narration, the monstrous narrator has neither spouse nor offspring. It may even be that this antipathy is a little bit like um, boys just coming into pubescence, not liking girls and pulling their pigtails and so on, mm. because they they have to somehow handle the fact that unwittingly, despite the best their best intentions, they're attracted to them. I think mm -hmm. one could suggest that there's some masculine feminine issue here, maybe even homophobia on the part of the monster. And when he says, you know, the kind he's trying mm -hmm. to be, it's like locker room humor. You know, we are all together here hating those those girls or those effeminate guys. Um, but maybe we're not all together there. There is another aspect besides the psychosexual that I think comes up. John Claverhouse again and again, even in the passage that you read. The name keeps coming up and we keep being told, think about the name, think about the name. Well, the narrator is saying that because he's really excited. But the author behind the story, whose voice we never hear, the implied author, is having the narrator say this, I think, so that we will pay attention to the name. Mm -hmm. So I tried to pay attention to the name. And I looked at the word Claverhouse, and the reason I'm pronouncing it that way is books, because clave is the past tense of the verb cleave. Mm -hmm. Cleave is one of those interesting Janus words that can either mean one thing or its opposite. You can cleave to something, meaning you join them together, or things can be cloven apart, as in a cloven hoof. 
So John Claverhouse can go either way, but the word clave also means a key. So this guy gives us this ambiguous key to what house? What house would this mean? This name, how could anyone with this name be allowed to live? Well, I know what his initials are. John mm-hmm. Claverhouse is JC. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in another passage that you read to us, Jesse, the monster who is angry at John Claverhouse and saying, how can he be allowed to live? Says, I swear by Judas. Mm-hmm. By Judas? By Judas? Not by God. By Judas? In other words, the monstrous narrator is aligning himself with those who would kill J.C. Now, who really kills J.C.? Of course, uh, one way to read the, uh, the New Testament is to say that the Romans kill Jesus. And maybe the Romans do it because they've been put up to it by someone else, right? But it's the Romans who actually kill J.C. The dog, which is so crucial here. The bitch that brings back the dynamite. The bitch is named Bologna. Mm-hmm. And even if you didn't bother looking it up, I don't mean you in particular, I mean any reader didn't bother looking it up. The story tells us that mm-hmm. Bologna is the wife of Mars. Actually, the the mythology is somewhat ambiguous. It could be that she's the wife. It could be that she's the sister. But one way or the other, Bologna is related to Mars. Both of those are war gods of ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. The dog that John Claverhouse had and loved so much, and the one, therefore, that was killed by the narrator with beef and strychnine, Mm -hmm. was named Mars. Mm -hmm. That was the male dog. In fact, the monster replaces the dog with this assiduously trained water spaniel bitch a female dog named Bologna. So (laughs) what the author has contrived to have the narrator do is substitute one Roman god for another Roman god to wind up killing J.C. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that Jack London was an atheist. Mm -hmm. I don't mean at all to suggest that this is supposed to be a story of a modern Jesus, nor do I think that anybody who actually were a Christian would like to think that J.C. um, would like to go around dynamiting animals and killing them. On the other hand, we are told that this J.C. wants to fish for trout. And in the Bible story, Jesus says to Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. Mm -hmm. The fish is the symbol of Jesus because even before the birth of Jesus, the fish had been in many cultures, including the Near East, a symbol for the soul. You know, you throw your net out into the still water, you pull it back up, and there's this wriggling silvery thing. And my goodness, it's like the soul. It's inside the individual. And what do we know about John Claverhouse? Well, maybe he likes to eat a lot of fish, although I don't think you can preserve fish all that well back in 1902. But what he says is, I dote on trout. No, etymologically, that means I'm foolish for trout. Um, And that leads to his little sin of getting them wholesale. But in fact, to dote also already had come to mean um, to be enormously fond of something, so fond of something or someone that you would do foolish things for that individual, perhaps even 
allow yourself to be killed? Um, I think what we're seeing here is a set of antipathies, as you say in the in the subtitle, a set of antipathies that work their way out in the conflicts that we see in deep mythology that we all mm-hmm. understand. You know, Jesus couldn't die for couldn't save us if he didn't die for us, right? I mean, the resurrection is the promise of Christianity. Mars and Bologna are gods, the Romans favor, but they are only good for the Romans because they they commit death. And mm-hmm. the moon face is a beauty above it all that our narrator can't stand perhaps because he is not productive. Perhaps he even is afraid of his own uh, lurking sense of homoeroticism, a a common theme in uh, American literature of the period. Um, And so he can only wind up feeling happy when the object of his desire, which he's turned into an antipathy, um, is gone. Uh, In fact, he's not really 100% happy because he needs to write the story. I, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Is how, what context is this story being told in? It, it's almost like he's he's confessing, and it, it of course reminds me. I I think that this story comes from the same tradition as Edgar Allan Poe's um, story uh, of a similar nature. Uh, you know the one I mean? Well, uh, actually, I thought of Cask a number. Of, Are you thinking yeah, of Cask of Amontillado? Yeah, I was thinking of that one. Right. In the Cask of Amontillado, the, the insult that's being answered by the uh, by Mont, by the, the guy who's walling up his cousin uh, is never explained. Again, you have to think it through to figure out why he hates his cousin so much that he walls him up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. This certainly is, is Poe. There are other ways in which this is a Poe-like story. If you take a look at uh, The Telltale Heart. Uh, right. The the narrator says the old man's eye. I couldn't stand it. It was the evil eye. And he goes and he kills him um, mm-hmm. and he kills him by turning the, him out of bed and turning the mattress over on top of him and lying down on top of him. I mean, it's it's oh, there it is such a bedroom scene mm. um, that, you know, why does he do this? And and there's nothing harmful about the old man that we can see at all. So, again, it's a completely constructed uh, projection of the insecurities and, and problems that the narrator is having with himself. Um, but we can see in that story that the narrator is giving himself away. The untrustworthiness, the unreliability of the narrator is part of what makes it a great story. We know what's really going on with the narrator through his own words, even mm-hmm. though he doesn't know what's going on. And I think that's part of what makes Moonface such a wonderful story, is that mm-hmm. we come to see, what do you mean, I know this kind? I don't, I don't, Moonface is always driving me crazy. John Claverhouse is a name that shouldn't be allowed to exist. No, you're crazy. And by becoming an untrustworthy narrator, we readers become more active. We look behind what he's saying to try to figure out what his motives really are. And that makes it a deeper and more interesting story for us. Mm-hmm. But as you say, it is possible, especially if you're willing to read it in a cartoonish way, 
to think, yeah, you know, there's a part of me that kind of likes to have Wile E. Coyote squashed. And there's mm-hmm. a part of me that kind of thinks, okay, you know, if you're mad for no damn reason, but you can express your madness by going out and obliterating the thing that makes you mad, that's a kind of satisfying thing. I shouldn't feel satisfied, but I kind of feel satisfied. So we have that same kind of ambivalence in reading the story. It's monstrous, mm-hmm. but, oh, isn't it delicious? It is. Uh, I, I I was thinking about how tightly uh, this is a very tightly packed story, and there is um, another resonance with that that Roman sort of tradition that you're you're pointing to with the Bolana and the and the Mars and um, he 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 sets the trap of the fishing in the mountains um, at a little lake. And it's described as being at an amphitheater, a natural amphitheater. And he sets himself on, up on top of the amphitheater and watches the show that he's he set up, smoking his pipe. And he's, he repeats that word, an amphitheater, as I said. It is. It is a show. It's a show for the narrator once he's set the trap in motion. And we, like him, sit there smoking, enjoying the monstrous action that occurs and laughing we laugh at the story what's so funny is that it's not just his moon face that drives the narrator or the name that drives the narrator insane to or this if not insane to this drastic ridiculously evil action um it's also his laugh and the in the reading of the story um and has if you read it aloud, we get to do both Claverhouse and uh, the narrator's voice, right? We the narrator's voice suffuses the entire text, but that that laughing is actually all spelled out. Oh ho ho he he ha 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 ho! Right? right, it's all spelled out so that every time some horrible uh, tragedy befalls John Claverhouse. He can laugh. He he can laugh at little things that are unrelated. It, it seems to me that the main character is a miserable monster, and in seeing a man who can seemingly like a stoic, just endure not just endure but almost ignore the tragedies that befall him. Uh, you know, only looks at the bright side of life. This is a recipe for disaster, right? If you've got somebody who just is miserable all the time and can't understand why uh, everybody else isn't miserable all the time and then confronts somebody who or lives next to someone who, no matter what the tragedy, is always happy and sunny, <laughs> we're looking at a recipe for disaster. This is a, a natural conflict that um, uh, I have so much sympathy for, and yet it is a monster story. I, I I wonder, Eric, how does this fit into our our genre? And it it's the kind of thing, you know, the science fiction fantasy sort of area that we're working through. It's the kind of thing that makes me think. The reason I'm attracted to this is because it is something that science can explore but has difficulty doing. A short story like this allows us to think about these things in a way that 
psychology doesn't seem to have adequate quick answers for. For me, that the story makes us want to probe feelings that are too easy for us to either indulge or dismiss shows a worth in the writing and a worth in literature. It's easy in life when something affects us and we, we, we like it and then we go, oh, wait a minute, I shouldn't have liked that. You know, I, yeah, I can't help but look at the accident as I go down the highway, but oh my God, oh, I, I should not enjoy this. This is someone else's suffering, you know, and, and, and then five miles later, you're concentrating on driving and you, you haven't probed the fact that you as a person, we as people, um, support these deeply contradictory feelings Mm -hmm. and somehow or other have got to feel that we are integrated despite the fact that these feelings feel like they come from two different people. Um, But with a story, we can push it far enough away from us that we can observe it the way we can make this into a cartoon and we can slow it down and we can go back and read it again. And I think that while reading a story like this allows us to go deeper in order to understand the story better, your way of saying this story surprisingly makes me happy and I shouldn't be tells me that one of the great things about this story is that it brings us back to ourselves and has the possibility of making us more understanding and honest about who we are. I agree completely. But of course, (laughs) there is always more to say.